everyone for joining us today. I'm welcoming back Andrew Marinus to the podcast, three-time Dear Adam Silver guest, and we'll get in a little bit to why he was on the podcast before, but I also want to shout out Kyle Green really quickly, sociology professor at SUNY Brockport, who maybe has actually been on the podcast a few more times than that. I'm not sure, maybe three or four. Uh, Not as a guest, uh, though, so not as prestigious. (laughs) <laughs> right, not not as prestigious, but it has been present on the podcast um, to to help co-host today and and ask Andrew some questions. Uh, so Andrew has been on the podcast before to discuss two of his books, Games of Deception, which came out in 2019, which focuses on the 1936 Olympic Games and singled out from 2021, which focuses on the story of Glenn Burke, who was the first out um, gay uh, Major League Baseball player uh, and inventor of the high five that's right uh, so here we go i'm just putting up my hand here to the screen i'm looking, looking for, for someone, someone out there um, and so andrew and i had great conversations about these two books before and of course andrew also wrote strong inside which was the story uh focused on perry wallace and the collision of race and sports in the south perry wallace was the first african-american to play college basketball under an athletic scholarship in the southeastern conference at vanderbilt university in the 1960s, and that was your first book, Andrew, in 2015. That's right. Um, yeah, and and you're also an alum of, of Vanderbilt as well. So this is like there's a lot of crossover there. Uh, but you are on the podcast today to to discuss inaugural ballers um, that came out in 2022 about the 1976 Olympics, which was the first Olympics to have women's basketball as a sport, and the the United States team that played in those games. So. This is an exciting book and especially exciting in this moment because this team was just inducted into the Hall of Fame this past weekend uh, alongside some wonderful players. Uh, and uh, I know that I spent some of Sunday watching amazing speeches and <laughs> crying a few times, yeah. I think. Yeah, Kyle's actually part of a text chain. I was like, I'm getting weepy during the Hall of Fame speeches. Um, so it's an it's exciting year for the Hall of Fame and especially because of this team being inducted. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast again. Oh, it's great to be back with you, Abigail. Third time. That, that makes me feel pretty special. And it's great <laughs> to meet you too, Kyle. So uh, thank you for having me on. If yes, you ever abs- have a Hall of Fame, oh. I think Andrew might be one of the inaugural members. <laughs> first, first class <laughs> Hall of Famer on the Dear Adam Silver podcast. Yes, this is great. I should start thinking about institutions, you know, like physical institutions maybe to support the podcast. That's yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. And Andrew, I want to mention that you were also the special projects coordinator for the Office of the Athletic Director at Vanderbilt University now as one of your as one of your jobs aside from your your writing career. So that's, that's right. Kind of, so I'm sitting yeah. in my office in the athletic department at Vanderbilt as we speak. Yes, and I get emails from you every Friday from that office about different, <laughs> different right. news about sports and, and society and things like that. So, um, and we can talk more about that a little bit later on. Um, so, I think, well, I just want to sort of these stories that you choose to write about are so particular and so interesting. And I think uh, sort of expand outwards. The, the detail of the stories kind of have implications for, you know, other instances beyond the the first chapter of inaugural ballers ends with the coach Billy Moore telling her team in the locker room 
um, that if we win this game, wait, sorry, let me start this quote over again, win this game and it will change women's sports in this country for the next 25 years. And I think that that quote is such a good example of how like these events uh, have impacts outside of, you know, the high five or, you know, like uh, Glenn Burke coming out and um, mm -hmm. and what happened in Munich in 1936, they all like reverberate outwards. And so I'm just curious about how you choose the subjects that you write about and also how you landed on the story of the 1976 women's team. Okay. Um, well, you know, I think it's important that you write about things that you love, you know, and I've been a sports fan uh, my whole life. I think I learned how to read by reading the back of baseball cards, you know, when I was four or five years old. Um, I was a history major in college. Uh, I like to think of myself as a type of sports fan that is kind of like uh, a dual sports fan. Like I'm just as a hardcore Milwaukee Brewers, Green Bay Packers, Vanderbilt fan as, as there is. But on the other hand, I also sometimes feel a little sheepish about like caring that much about that outcome of a game and realize that sports is really much more meaningful and significant in terms of the um, social aspects of the game, you know, what it reveals, um, what it creates in society. And so that's what I'm really interested in writing about, interested in writing about, not about um, necessarily great games or a the statistics that a player had or the impact that they had on the court or on, on the field necessarily, but um, the broader human interest, human nature, social aspects of their lives and their careers. And so um, with my first book on Perry Wallace, I came onto his story as a student at Vanderbilt. I was taking a black history course my sophomore year and I learned about this man. I didn't grow up in Nashville. I didn't really know anything about the school before I got here. And so learning that someone who had gone to my school was the Jackie Robinson figure of the SEC was really interesting to me as a as a student. I wrote a paper about him for that class and having a chance to come back to that story 17 years later as an adult, you know, and spend eight years writing Perry's uh, a biography of Perry. He taught me so much about um race and racism and the toll of pioneering. And that's what really hooked me on this idea of using sports as a venue to talk about more important social issues. Um, I adapted that book for kids. So that initially I wrote it for adults and then I created a young readers version. And that even sort of gave more fuel to that uh, fire, you know, so having a chance to visit middle schools and high schools and see how sports being so accessible, you know, I mean, not all kids are sports fans, not all people are sports fans, but kind of can't ignore it. You know, it's in the air around all of us. And so I, I don't think it's intimidating for anyone to pick up a book with the basketball player on the cover, but, and learn about that person in terms of their basketball career, but also their uh, place in the civil rights movement and what their story can t teach us about racism, you know, uh, or pick up a book with the baseball player on the cover and really learn about the gay rights movement in the seventies, you know, someone that might ordinarily not read about that. Um, now with, with uh, inaugural ballers, it's about this basketball team, but it's also about women's rights and feminism in the 1970s and how this team fit into that. And so I find that just really interesting uh, and fun for me to research and to write um, again, especially with young people trying to get them interested in reading in the first place, you know, sports can be an effective way to do that, I think, but then to give them something more important than sports along the way. And so actually the idea for inaugural ballers came from an eighth grader. Um, I was in uh, DeSoto, Kansas, outside of Kansas City, 
few years ago speaking about my book, Games of Deception, which you mentioned. It's on the first U.S. men's Olympic basketball team, played at the 1936 Olympics in Nazi Germany. And half of the players on that team came from the state of Kansas. And so I knew it was important to go out to Kansas to talk about the story. And so I, I was speaking at this middle school and telling their story. And a girl named Addie raised her hand. She was in eighth grade. And she said, well, that's great. You've told us about the first men's team. But what's the story of the first women's Olympic basketball team? And so really it was standing on the stage at Lexington Trails Middle School in DeSoto, Kansas, that um, Addie gave me the idea for this book. And it was really fun after the book came out. Um, she's now in high school. I went back to her middle school, though, and told the kids there, you know, it was one of you all a couple of years ago that asked the question that led to this book. And then I was able to do a Zoom with Addie and thank her personally and send her a copy of the book. But um, uh, it was a chance to write about women's sports, which I hadn't done yet. Um, a team that I felt was really significant, just like you said, did change women's sports over the next 25 years after the 76 Olympics had some amazing figures associated with the team, which we can talk about, but really hasn't gotten uh, much attention, hasn't had their story told that often. Um, and then you could place it within context of uh, women's rights movement in the 70s. All those factors together uh, made it a really interesting topic for me. Yeah, absolutely. Did Addie remember, you know, giving you the tough question there? Yeah, she did. <laughs> okay. Yeah, her librarian was on the Zoom too. It was it was a really cool moment to get to talk to her. Um, and she still is a basketball player herself, you know, which is part of the reason why she asked the question. And she represents um, a lot of what these women in 1976 had in mind and what their coach had in mind. And a lot of times you interview people about some history that they made and you ask, did you really get the significance of it at the time? And often they say, no, you know, like I was just living my life. It wasn't until decades later that I realized this had some lasting impact. But what I thought was so interesting about Billy Moore's quote is they were totally aware of the place that they had in history at that time. They knew how significant it was. That it was the first women's basketball tournament in the Olympics and that so many people were watching and title nine had been signed a few years earlier. Things were beginning to change and they felt like, they could really accelerate that, you know, um, through their performance in Montreal and that um, they understood that they as players and coaches stood on the shoulders of women who came before them that didn't get opportunities to perform at the Olympic or professional or even college level. Um, and that there would be girls coming along after them that would benefit from what they did and that they were passing the baton on to a new generation. And I talked to these players today and they still feel this way, you know, that, that, um, they feel proud of what they created, the opportunities they created, but they also understand there's so much more to go and that women athletes or male athletes today, you know, have that responsibility to advance the ball uh, even further. Yes. And I think it's so important to have this conversation also in the, you know, in the context of what's happening right now with, with the Women's World Cup uh, and, and sort of the vitriol that's been shown huh. towards these, yeah. uh, th this women's team and that, you know, that they, they, they lost. And, and, and thinking about that also in the context of Billy Moore's quote, it's like, what if this Olympic team in 1976 had gone out into the court and they had not gotten silver, you know, would, have, yes. would they have still had an impact? And, and I'd like to think so, but also like, you know, we, we, we like binaries and we like winning versus we losing. Like winning, and yes. so, yeah. And so it's just, um, I think that that's, that's rough. Kyle, do you have, did you have something? Yeah, the problem is your answer gave me about 15 different questions and <laughs> directions <laughs> that I want to go. Um, I guess one thing that I really appreciate is that 
as an educator, I love that you not only write for young adults, but you also make a point of going into schools and connecting with them. Mm-hmm. And so I really appreciate that. And I'm, I'm curious to us, 1976 doesn't seem that long ago. Right. And when we read the first time that women were actually in the Olympics, that seems like it should have happened before. But when you're talking to people who are 15 years old, 17 years old, how do they respond to it? Because 1976 to a 15-year-old is a lot longer ago <laughs> than it is to us. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, and I appreciate what you said at the outset, too. I, I feel like if you're going to write for young people, like it's part of the deal. It's an uh, opportunity and an obligation like to go to schools um, and to um, meet with students, try to um, show them that anybody could become an author. You know, there's nothing special, magical about me. You know, like if I can do it, they can do it. Um so to inspire them to write, but also to read, you know, yeah. and to show that I also have always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder in certain academic environments, especially in college level, that sports is worthy, you know, yeah. um, it's worthy of writing about, it's worthy of reading about, um, uh, not just worthy, but like one of the most interesting genres to read or to write about. And so, uh, you know, I try to impress that upon the teachers too, you know, that these books are, are worthwhile for their students to read. Um, yeah, it does sound like forever ago to them. Um, and they love looking at the pictures and the uniforms and the different styles. Um, but, you know, I've also been so uh, impressed with young people, not only in their understanding and their interest in history, but, especially their interest and their hunger for the, the social messages in these books, you know, at the same time that these, not necessarily inaugural ballers, but other books that I've written are um, the types of books that are under fire in so many parts of the country right now, dealing with racism or dealing with a gay character, you know, um, it's not the students that are afraid or not interested in these books. You know, it's, it's certain uh, segments of, of parents uh, and political groups out there that are fighting against these books um, and all too often succeeding, at least temporarily in certain school districts. Um, But it's been inspiring for me to be around middle school and high school students and see how um, they have responded to these stories and how, how, how strongly they are interested in them. How do you handle that potential backlash? Because I, that is one of the things that interests me is that now it's not just that, sport is being protected as like an apolitical space that you're not supposed to bring politics into. Now you see people from more conservative backgrounds Mm -hmm. politicizing sport and using it as, especially looking at women's sports. When the women lost the World Cup, a lot of conservative figures and outlets really celebrated that loss. Um, Or we could look at younger levels where you have bands and who's able to participate, what conversations are able to happen. And you're writing about topics that you're looking at sport in a way that will anger a lot of people. So does that affect how you write? Does that inspire you or motivate yeah. you? Like, what do you, what do you do with that? I would say more it motivates me to keep doing it. Um, I have had uh, here in Nashville, are you familiar with Moms for Liberty, which is the group that is behind a lot of the book bands. Um, they've shown up at some of my events to observe uh, as parents at certain schools. Um, I've had a chance to speak at the state legislature here in Tennessee where school librarians were being vilified and slandered as um, child molesters and just like outrageous claims. And so it's become an active part of, I feel like my job as an author, you know, to fight against that. Um, But yeah, it hasn't stopped me or prevented my publisher from doing these types of books. In fact, um, 
in the spring, I have a new series coming out for even younger kids called Beyond the Game for the early chapter books. Like say for first, second graders, they're just starting to read chapter books on their own. Um, and it'll be about athletes that have done uh, important work for uh, other people outside of their sport. So the first book will be on Maya Moore, you know, and the fact that she quit her WNBA career at the height of her career, the best player in the world to um, help Jonathan Irons, you know, get out of prison for a crime he didn't commit. Uh, the second book will be on LeBron James and the school that he started in Akron and the work he's done for voting rights, you know, and speaking out against gun violence. Um, third book will be on Pat Tillman, uh, you know, who left his NFL career to enlist in the army after 9-11 was killed by friendly fire and the army lied about the circumstances uh, in which he was killed writing about those issues for first graders, you know, so I'm going even younger, um, with these topics. I know that there are, there's a lot of noise about these groups that are banning books, but I do feel that most parents don't feel that way, or at least there's a significant segment of parents that want their student kids to be exposed to these types of stories. And these represent the values that they have as parents, you know, and they want their kids to learn about athletes that have done good work for other people. And um, so I'm really excited about those books, uh, which will start coming out in um, March, the LeBron and uh, Maya stories come out in March and Pat Tillman six months later, and then hopefully those sell well and I'll be able to continue that series. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing that was so exciting to me about the books that I've read is the ability to share them. I think like with my students that I've shared the work with, I always have things I want to share with them and, and more readings I want to give them. And they are not always ready to take that on, as we all know, I'm sure. But there was something nice about that I knew when I was sharing this book that I wasn't like, hey, read this super uh, academic article that, you know, mm. is it, you're probably going to look up, you know, spend a lot of time with the dictionary also and things like that. <laughs> the accessibility of the story and, and sort of breaking it down and having it like putting it in context. I think when we talk about movements, like even, you know, the Nazi movement or the Nazis rise to power or, uh, you know, the feminist movement and, and uh, all these things, the civil rights movement, like there's so much within those movements to, to look at and certain events and certain things and, and, and individual experiences that, that can paint that larger picture. And so I, I think that there's so much power in the context. And of course, mm -hmm. that is also why your books might be getting protested is because of that power. I mean, I hate to even right. act. That's just like, that is an illegitimate movement in my opinion, what's yeah. going on because they're like, no matter what you do, if you started writing, like whatever, whoever you're writing this for these movements, this moms for Liberty, blah, 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 there, they will have an issue. You yes. Know, it really has nothing. <laughs> honestly, I agree. Like to do with the, um, the content per se, I think it's just part of a bigger effort to, um, attack public schools and attacks on the truth and democracy and all of that. Um, yeah. And, and that, that context that is so powerful that supports these experiences that are quite real. And so I think that that's something that I learned so much about these movements from these books. You know, of course, I can reference, and I know places and time and things like that, but it's just so nice to have it broken down in such mm -hmm. a clear and concise way. Well, I'm happy to hear you say, too, that, you know, you use it. We've been talking about my interaction with younger students, but these books, I, I try to write them so that literally almost anybody could read it, you know, um, whether you're middle school, high school, adult. They're just stories, you know, and uh, my publisher's advice to me was not to dumb them down for kids. You know, the only difference I feel like is that I, mean, I still do um, as much research as I did for my initial adult book on Perry Wallace. 
but they're faster paced, shorter books um, with a lot of photos, you know, but the stories are just as I, I hope that they're written in a way that you're. Uh, college students feel like they're not reading, you know, a, a book that was meant for sixth graders or something like that. Um, uh, they're meant for adults, everybody. We need that too, right? Yeah. <laughs> like we, <laughs> we need this faster pace. It's, it's difficult to read these days. <laughs> yes, exactly. Attention yeah. spans are dwindling. Has that, has that affected? So thinking about how we engage with information. So how you see, I mean, I like that you're showing that younger people, you respect their engagement with social issues. It's not, and you're pointing out that it's often the parents who want to shut down these conversations. But a lot of younger people's engagement with social issues occurs through things like technology and social media and TikToks, like these retellings of history. And I feel like that's affected how I engage with information now. Mm-hmm. Has that has that shaped your writing at all? Or have you seen, as, as, as when you consider who the audience is, is that part of making sure that you keep it kind of rapid pace and the stories yeah. have to be engaging? <laughs> yeah, I would say to some degree. I, it's not something I, I think about too much other than the fact that I know the stories do have to be fast-paced. I, I spend a lot of time thinking about opening chapters, uh, opening scenes, and then um, the beginning and ending of every chapter, you know, and uh, just the, the stamina is an issue um, for almost any age group right now. Um, and, you know, you spend the time researching these books, you want people to actually enjoy it and also finish it. And so I think a big part of that is keeping them uh, wanting more, you know, and so the kickers to the chapters um, become important. And then I've also spent a decent amount of my own money on each book because it's the author's responsibility to pay for photos, uh, you know, say from AP or Getty or other sources that you, where you have to pay for a picture. That's the off the you can I've worked out a little bit of a photo allowance with my publisher, but um, for the most part, that's back on me to spend part of my advance on the photos. But I think that's really important in these books. I know as a, as a kid, if I knew that a page only had half text on it because there was a picture on it, like I that was a, a welcome uh, break in the book, right? And so. Um, I also think that photos add a lot of obviously, you know, um, color and detail to a story. And so I opt on the side of, of more photos rather than less. And I space them throughout the book rather than having a, a picture section in the middle um, because of that reading stamina issue that you, that you brought up. Uh, as a visual artist and someone who teaches visual arts and a photographer myself, yes. like, let's load up more books with more images. <laughs> but I, I don't want the author to have to pay for all of them, but I do I do think that it makes for such dynamic reading. And actually this chapter that Kyle and I were just working on around activism and sports and artists' involvement in that, like we included a lot of photos in that. And I think that's something mm-hmm. that made the chapter proposal more competitive because yes. it was adding this other elements to it that people would be interested in or attracted by. Yeah, that's great that you did that. I totally yeah. agree. So I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, yeah, all for that. Yeah. And so I think that, um, so I had my own art project that I've done about Senda Berenson. I've actually traveled oh. to her, uh, um, this village Butramonis in Lithuania, where she's wow. from to see kind of what was going on there about her story. And so I really liked that, you know, we, we start off in 1976 with this silver medal game that the team is playing at the beginning of the book. And then we, throw it back like mm-hmm. 60 years or whatever, <laughs> to uh, 1892 when basketball is coming, you know, modern, modern game of basketball is being invented, quote unquote, by James Naismith and, and Senda Berenson sort of, you know, 
finds out about the game and wants to adapt it for women. And one of the stories that's included in the book that I didn't know about myself from my own research is that she like dislocated one of her players' (laughs) uh, shoulders. So she's going, she's like throwing the ball up for the first game and the player has her hand over the ball accidentally. She like throws her uh, shoulder out. So I just, I love that little thing that like, it just, you know, kind of messed up from the beginning. I soldiered Um, on. Yeah, exactly. It kept going though. I mean, she was just like, Next up, like yeah. <laughs> so we keep going, like get some ice for that. Um, so I'm wondering, I'm sure you had maybe like what was your knowledge about these sort of origins of the game for women before? What did you learn along the way? Yeah, um, and one thing I want to say for the listeners before I answer that too is a couple times we referred to them winning the silver medal in '76, and. They won the silver medal. You know, like now you would lose the gold medal game and settle for the silver medal. And I think it's important to say that back then it was a different turn type of tournament. Round Robin where the team who won the most games got the gold. That was the Soviets. They were dominant. They had a 7-2 center. Team that won the second most games won the silver. And we played a game against Czechoslovakia knowing if we won that game, we'd win the silver medal. So it was a cause for celebration for the U.S. back when – we had finished in eighth place in the world championships the year before. It's not like it is today where U.S. is the dominant team in women's basketball and it would be a huge you know, upset to not win the goal. So I think that's important for people to understand. Um, I didn't know too much about um, the history of women's basketball when I got started on this book. A little bit, though, because I had written the book about the first men's team. And so in writing that book, I had gone to Springfield College and done a lot of research on James Naismith and the origins of the game. And I did remember that one of the stories I learned then was really the first people to watch a basketball game who weren't playing in it were women. You know, they were school teachers from Buckingham Elementary School in Springfield, Mass., who would take a walk at lunchtime and happen to go past the armory where the or the YMCA training school at the time. And they heard the commotion in there and they walked in and stood on the balcony and watched some of these very first basketball games being played. And I think it's great that that balcony they stood on was really a, it was an elevated running track above the court, like there is at so many Ys even today, you know, and that track was 10 feet off the floor. And that's why the hoop is 10 feet off the floor, you know, in every basketball uh, uh, hoop in the world, right? Just because of the way that was set up in Springfield, Mass. with those peach baskets. Um, there were no backboards then. Those observers of these first games were standing right behind the peach basket, right? They could kick the ball. And that was apparently one of the reasons why the backboard was invented um, to prevent that from happening. So these women were watching the games, fascinated by it, asked James Naismith if they could play too. A really important question, right? And he said yes. And so uh, the problem that they had was there weren't any other women that had ever seen a basketball game. So who are they going to play against? And the, you know, our research showed that they played against like Maud Naismith and the women who were associated with some of the men at, at Springfield College. And then Senda Berenson meets Naismith at a conference uh, what, like less than a year later and, and ports the game to Smith College. And um, so, you know, living here in Nashville, I was able to go over to the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame in Knoxville, not too far away, do quite a bit of research there, which was really helpful for the book. And what was most interesting to me in learning about the development of the women's game was, I mean, obviously it wasn't that women's Olympic basketball began in 1976 because that's when women started to play. You know, they'd been playing since the week that basketball was invented. 
but to see the um, the ups and downs in terms of participation in the game and larger social acceptance of women playing basketball and other sports, they're so closely mirrored other uh, bigger trends in American culture, especially, you know, so the idea that women were, were playing and that uh, the game was popular during the 19 teens and twenties when women's suffrage is an issue, you know, and, uh, but there's a backlash to that in the thirties. Uh, and then in the forties, world war two and women are, how can you tell Rosie Riveter she can't play basketball if she's also building an airplane, right? And so women's basketball becomes more popular, more accepted. The society becomes more conservative in the 50s. You see schools dropping their programs or girls told they're not supposed to sweat, you know, things like that. And then 60s and uh, women's liberation coming along and uh, basketball, you know, um, growing as well to the point that, you know, Title IX comes along in the early 70s and you have this first team in, in, in 76. And so that was the part that was interesting to me to see how it really did pretty closely uh, mirror or um, reflect other uh, women's issues in the country. I like how much that history disrupts the kind of lazy story that we've fallen into where women's sports always just, it's like this trickle down effect for men's sports. Oh, women don't really want to watch sports. They don't really want to play sports. But then as they get more popular, then you start to see it. And then also this kind of, well, it started after title nine, but you're showing, (laughs) Hey, from the very beginning, there were women fans who wanted to play the very first week. Right. And then even the story of, you know, they went off competing in the Olympics and it wasn't that women in other countries weren't playing sport or playing basketball, mm-hmm. because that's the other thing we slip into is saying, well, you know, women in the United States, they're always on the forefront of participating in yeah. sports. Well, they're it can't be behind. true because you yeah. go off and compete against Russia. And here's this dominant team with a seven foot center. So <laughs> clearly, clearly women in the United States weren't the only people playing sports. So all these details that remind me not to slip into that trap, too, uh, yeah. when I'm teaching about the history of sport. That's right. And that was interesting for me to learn about that, the so- how dominant the Soviet team was and how that fit into like you see across so many other sports, men's and women's sports, sort of Cold War rivalries, you know, and that the Soviets were far ahead of us in terms of supporting women's athletics at that time um, for all sorts of reasons, but political reasons among them. And that's one of the reasons why they were um, pushing. It was Soviets. In the men's basketball case, it was Fog Allen and Americans who were behind introducing men's basketball to the Olympics. Women's basketball was the Soviets that had uh, um, brought it up with the IOC many times and failed in the fifties and the sixties. And one of the reasons they were hoping to get in the Olympics is they knew they were so much better than the U S and, you know, wanted that opportunity um, on the international stage to be the best uh, at that sport. And they were uh, in the 76 Olympics with uh, Ljana Semenova, who was the seven foot two center, who was unstoppable. They also had Alex Ovechkin's mom uh, was a guard on that team and a really hard nosed player that all the American women (laughs) remembered. Yeah, and and I think that intersectionality is also really powerful. So we're talking about women's rights and this push for like women to like you know find a place for themselves in sports and all the barriers to overcome that, and also how racism was functioning at the same time. So like you know the women's suffrage movement, only white women gained the the right right to vote from that. And your book, you know, that's like two chapters in that we're talking about that. You know, Mm -hmm. and so I think that that like really sets the stage for knowing that, and we get into more particular stories of these players that are on this 1976 team, we dive into how like the different hurdles that they had to overcome depending on the color of their skin. And so I think that, you know, that is something that's really important is like we're fighting for women's rights and like a space for women in sports. And also like black women are up against all this other, 
all these other barriers uh, yeah. to overcome. And so, yeah. But And then the other piece that I thought was important to include in the book was that it was Native American women that actually – played the uh, best basketball in the Olympics for the first time, you know, yes, the and, Fort uh, Shaw, and also the Fort Shaw team. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The Fort Shaw team. Right. Yeah, exactly. At the St. Louis uh, Olympics. And, um, you know, all, we've learned so many of the horrors of the Indian boarding schools, but one of the things that they did is they used sports as a way to, uh, as a public relations vehicle, you know, and so the, the girls team from uh, Fort Shaw was, was brought to St. Louis for the 1904 Olympics and part of the, um, an adjunct to the the quote unquote human zoo that was at yeah. those Olympics that was uh, so racist, um, and so these women weren't uh, expected to really play very well, right? And they ended up winning the tournament uh, in front of Geronimo, uh, who was there as a prisoner of the as the U.S. government at the time, and so that was just an exhibition sport at those games. It wasn't a medal sport. But it was Native American women that won the first women's basketball tournament that was associated with an Olympics. Uh, and I thought that was a really interesting piece of history. Yes. And because they, they were known as the you know champions of the world because of the, you know, the, the what the Olympics mean or the World's Fair, you know, and so right. that they're on that platform. And so it's like, yeah, but also tied to this like training or this certain way of like unlearning. Um, and, and so it's like they're. That celebrating their excelling and their accomplishments and also knowing that like that where this game came to them from is like this awful system that was trying to keep them from their own culture yes. and isolate them from their histories. And so it's just, yeah. It's a complex issue, you yeah. know, that they found a way to sort of assert themselves, their, their bodies, you know, their physicality, yes. their talents, you know, and, and uh, their, I think their resistance was their, their success uh, in the right. tournament. It's also yeah. at this turning point where the assumption is that sport will be, like you were saying, a vehicle to show white superiority <laughs> on a genetic level. Uh-huh. And just this narrative that, okay, the white white people, whether it's men or women, will dominate and it will show that biologically there's an advantage. And then you see all these resistances like you're putting, <laughs> like, like you're explaining. So there had the narrative had to shift in some way. And we've seen that since. And sometimes when I talk to students about how you go back to boxing in the late 1800s, early 1900s, how that was the argument that it would show that white men were the superior group. And now the way we talk about black bodies and athleticism is completely shifted, right? Still right. these kind of racist ideas within it, but it's right, shifted right. how Just, we try to assert that. Absolutely. And, and one thing I'm so glad that you brought up is your connection to Tennessee because, you know, Pat Head, who would become Pat Summit, uh, is such an important part of this team and um, this, this 1976 team. And I'm just wondering how, uh, you know, and, and she is like the, the I would say, and uh, Andrew, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but like Pat Summit defined, has defined basketball in Tennessee in a lot of ways on a larger <laughs> sitting here wearing level. a Vanderbilt shirt while oh, we're sorry. talking about this. But yes. <laughs> He's going to lose his job like, as a, a result of that claim. East of you. Yeah, a little bit east. So yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, it's great. It's a great yeah. point. Yeah. No, and, so, and so that that connection, like, so part of this is like maybe far flung and we're thinking about, you know, the – something decades ago and things like that. And then there's this like in your backyard, Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak, there's this really rich history of women's basketball where, you know, there's a whole, like a whole legacy of people who have come out of that program who have such, you know, done so many amazing things for the sport. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm just wondering about that connection for you as a Tennessean. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, it was really interesting for me. And as a, like, like I've mentioned a couple of times, like a uh, diehard Vanderbilt person, like I don't own a stitch of, orange no one in my family does you know and uh 
<laughs> Every time I go to Knoxville, I feel like I'm in enemy territory. So it was you, interesting you for me. Crayons from the crayon box before you yeah, yeah, play with them when you're young. Just get rid of those colors. It's not yeah. part, of, not an option. Maybe even yellow and red should go, so we don't even have a yeah, chance you don't of yourself. them mixing. Yeah. <laughs> but obviously, I've always uh, you, you can't help but respect the Lady Vols basketball program. And I saw Pat Summit coach here in Nashville against Vanderbilt many times, and had a chance to meet her one time uh, with involved with the PSA that she was shooting. And um, so I always like highly respected her, but it was really interesting for me to learn more about her, you know, and especially her childhood and the fact that she was a player too. You know, you just think of her on the sideline as a coach, um, but really to, for me to humanize her, you know, for my own self and also for the sake of, of the book was one of my favorite parts of researching this book and to understand the, the thing that I think is so interesting about these women on the 76 team is like how they put themselves in position to even be on an Olympic team. Um, now youth sports are so over-organized that they're like, there's a, there's a path to becoming an elite player from the time you're born, it seems like, right. And everyone follows that, that path. Back then there was no necessarily path to playing on your elementary school team. They might not have gym class for girls or, sports offered for girls in elementary or middle like there's passing petitions around to get to use the gym one day a week you know than the generation that these women are growing up in and so like how did they do it um there was no guarantee like if you work hard at this sport that you'll have a chance to get a college scholarship or get to play in the WNBA or something there was no guarantee that your parents would even accept you playing, right? Yeah. Um, so yet they still did it and they still had such dedication and drive and worked so hard to become good basketball players when everyone's telling them this is something you're not supposed to do. So like in Pat Head's case, she learned how to play basketball in the hayloft of the barn <laughs> at, at her family's. I love that story <laughs> and her brothers and her, yeah, there's yeah. so much there. Yeah. And then her father, who I would characterize as an abusive father, made a move that was really uh, forward thinking, you could say, right? I mean, her high school didn't offer girls sports. And so he moved the family across the county line so that Pat could go to a different high school that had a girls basketball team in high school. We wouldn't know who she was if that ha hadn't happened, you know? Um, so that's her path. That's the, her beginnings to becoming an Olympian and a coach. Uh, and she was already the head coach at the University of Tennessee when she was the co-captain player on the 76 Olympic team and it shows you how like, um, you know, this is the very beginnings of things that that could even happen. Um, Lucy Harris, who is up until a couple years ago when there was a great short documentary made about her, the one in Oscar. I don't think most uh, people really knew the name Lucy Harris. She was uh, the first black player at Delta state, you know, led that team to national championships. She was national player of the year multiple times. She grew up in the poorest part of the Mississippi Delta, you know, not far from where Emmett Till was murdered, not far from where Fannie Lou Hamer lived at the time, just playing on a rickety hoop, you know, nailed to a, a post in the backyard on a dirt uh, court, wasn't going to play in college. She wanted to go to HBCU that didn't offer a girls' a women's basketball team. The last minute she's recruited to Delta State, it was, you know, so close to never knowing who Lucy Harris is, you know, and then she becomes the best player on the silver medal winning team in the Olympics and is the first woman drafted by an NBA team. Um, 
And then there are other cases where girls and basketball was supported in certain pockets of the country. You know, so Julene Simpson, who's the other co-captain of the team, represented um, there was a lot of support in even what we might consider ordinarily conservative environments uh, for women's sports. So Catholic schools, especially Catholic all girls schools where there wasn't competition for money needed to go to the boys football team or the basketball team. It's an all girls school. So there wasn't that fight for dollars. In the Northeast, she's grown up in New Jersey. She didn't have any obstacles to play in basketball. Her obstacle was, she told me, like, her knees could only handle either praying or playing basketball. <laughs> so she dropped out of the Catholic school to, to continue to play basketball. Um, and then someone like Ann Myers in California, who's part of, a, I think, one of 11 kids. Everybody's an athlete. Her dad had played college basketball. Her older sister is a great athlete. She felt like the only way she could get any attention from her father was through sports, you know, for better or worse. And that was kind of what drove her. Um, so the, the different paths that these women took to arriving uh, on the Olympic team in 76 were so, uh, I mean, unique is an overused word, but every path was unique on this team and so different from what you see today where great players are steered to travel teams and AAU teams and the best colleges. And there's a, like, you know, there's pretty much one way that you, you arrive there. Yeah. Kyle, did you have a question about that? Oh, I was just gonna say, it's impressive how much access you had to the, these key people as well. Yeah. Were there, were people generally when you reached out, just excited to share their story? And I mean, you, yeah. you've published some books before, which helped, right. But um, were Maybe. people generally pretty open about sharing their backgrounds and talking to you? Absolutely. And it, that was, uh, to me, kind of poignant. Um, I feel like if I had written a book about the 76 men's Olympic team, I don't think the players, they, they may have talked to me, they may not have. You know, um, NBA players today, if an author contacted them, they deal with the media all the time. It wouldn't be a very big deal, you know. But it was interesting to me that these women, who are legends of the game, still felt like... Um, they were happy that someone was interested in their story, you know, and that, that their story was going to be told. And so I felt as an author, I was grateful that they were willing to um, spend a lot of time doing interviews with me and sharing pictures and, you know, everything that goes along with writing a book. On the other hand, I kind of felt like, well, man, this should have happened so many decades ago that they, they don't want to deal with me because it's like old news to them, you know, but it, it wasn't. Um, Billy Moore, who was passed away recently, but I was able to interview her for the book many times and she was able to read it. It came out before she died. Um, first time I talked to her, she said, I'll do anything I can to help you because, you know, my players deserve the attention. And that really helped that the coach, you know, everyone, these women are, you know, <laughs> 40 years older than they were then. But if the coach is behind it, you know, they were going to be behind it too. And so that, that really helped. And so um, there were a few players um, that were not interested in speaking. There's one woman, Nancy Dunkel, who's on the, was on the team that I don't think any of the players even know where she is right now. Um, and so I wasn't able to interview every living player, but the vast majority of them and Billy Moore, the coach herself, and also Millie Barnes, who's in her nineties now, who was the first woman hired by USA Basketball. And she was the woman that, that really was the architect of the team in terms of hiring the coach and uh, creating the tryout process. They'd never had a tryout process before, you know? Um, and, and so she, I was able to interview her as well. And it was, uh, I loved it, every aspect of it. Do you always send people the chapters or the books before you publish them? Because I think that's a really nice practice that not everyone does. 
I'm sorry, I, my headphone came. What did you? Ask? Oh, sorry. I was wondering. Do you always send people the chapters that you wrote about them or the book before you publish? Because I know not everyone really? does that. It's kind of right. nice and potentially rewarding, but also challenging if they if they don't like the way you portray it. Right. They're like, shut, shut it down. Yeah, yeah. Like, that, could, right. that could be a bad moment. Yeah, with this book, um, I I didn't necessarily share chapters or the book. There were certain uh, scenes that I ran by people just to make sure I had it right. With my first book on Perry Wallace, which I spent eight years writing, um, I did let him read the whole thing before it came out. I felt that he that I owed that to him because I had taken up so much of his life. He had to deal with me for eight years as I was working <laughs> yeah. on this book. And um, he also was the type of person I knew was not going to uh, – he understood. Like I can't tell him because I don't like this for whatever reason, even if it's true that like that he could request that comes out of the book. You know, it, The only thing that it, it really helped though because – I interviewed over a hundred people for that book and they would, you know, if someone was writing a, a book about you, Kyle or Abigail, and you interview, I interviewed your friends, they might remember anecdotes that you've forgotten about. Right. And so that happened with Perry where his sis, older sisters told me stories or his teammates told me stories. And he hadn't remembered that for 40 years, but when he read it in the book, he said, Oh yeah, I, I forgot about that, but here's something else that happened that day, you know? And so it helped me expand the story It didn't limit it in any way. And so, yeah, I, I know that, um, as a journalism practice, you really don't, you're not any, ever running something by a subject for approval, but I learned through that process with Perry that it is okay in some circumstances to share things with people in hopes that it, um, they'll add something that, that makes it better. And how was your experience with Billy Moore and, and since you met her and, and wrote this book and, and she's such a large figure in this whole story and then mm -hmm. being knowing her at the end of her life. And I, I remember what you sharing via Twitter sharing that she was, you know, dying and that, you know, she had passed away and, and it was almost because I didn't know who Billy Moore was until I read this book that right. there was like, it was like the story, like the book was like continuing as you shared, you know, your interaction, like what you, yeah. know, you experienced there. And then also how that all ties to this uh, induction of the team into the hall of fame this year. And like the honoring of the team, she's not, a, she's not here anymore to, to have, to have been there. I'm just wondering this, like that there's a lot of emotions there. I'm sure, you know, like stepping into this story, mm -hmm. telling it and also, you know, being around for this huge loss. Yeah. Um, and it, it was again, indicative of the, the way that a team sticks together that I even knew Billy was passing away. Ann Myers texted me and said that she had been at her house, you know, and that I, I would want to know this and that my book was sitting on her bedstand, you know? And so that was emotional. Um, yeah. I didn't really know who Billy Moore was either until I got started on this book, but learning that she was kind of the Pat summit before Pat summit, you know, in terms of her demeanor on the court and her success on the court, her literal like mentorship of Pat summit. Um, and so uh, it was fascinating to get a chance to talk to her. And you could tell also that later in her life, you know, like a lot of coaches, she kind of looked back at some of the things she used to do with a bit of a sense of humor, you know, and she said, she would say things like my players probably thought I was trying to kill them with how much I ran them back then. And I probably was, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> she would admit that and maybe that she had softened a little bit over the years, but she knew that they weren't the most talented team in the world. And she felt like the only chance they had was to be in great shape, you know, and to be able to um, run the court the entire game. And so she built a team around that philosophy and um, was an amazing coach. And the other just 
fascinating thing she told me is that growing up in Kansas, where her dad was a high school coach of both boys and girls, um, one time she hurt her back. And so her father took her to the best osteopath in the state of Kansas who lived in Lawrence, Dr. Allen, Dr. Fogg Allen, <laughs> you know, um, laid his hands on really more. And he was the one responsible for men's basketball being included in the Olympics for the very first time in 1936. And then decades later, his young patient becomes the coach of the first women's basketball team ever. I mean, that was just an amazing uh, story to be able to, in connection to be able to share in the book that I had never heard before. Yeah, I love that. And also it's just like what history gives us kind of, you know, like the things that where it opens up and it's like, wow. And that connection of like what was passed through perhaps. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. And then the other aspect you mentioned, you know, carrying it on to the induction and she's not able to be there. But, you know, that was kind of um, the same thing that happened in Montreal in 76. Just as you know, coaches in team sports don't receive medals. Um, and so when the U.S. women were about to walk on their court to receive their silver medals, um, the story goes that Sue Gunter, who is the, goes on to be the legendary coach, was the assistant coach back then. And she's the one who's kind of straightening out the collars of, of the women before they walk out there. And Julian Simpson, the co-captain, looks at her and Billy Moore when it's time to walk out on the um, podium for their medals like, come on, let's go. And they they have to break the news to her that, well, we don't get to go out there, you know, and Julene said, well, I'm not going out there if you can't. And, and Billy Moore says, you know, go, go, go do this. And so the um, players, when they dipped their heads to have the medals draped around their necks, they all turned and pointed and acknowledged their coaches over uh, in the corner who weren't able to be out there with them. And then of course, Billy and Sue both have passed away, weren't able to be there at the hall yeah. of fame induction, but they're, um, Billy's sister was there. I had a chance to meet her. And, uh, of course, all the players were telling stories about Billy and um, just enjoying that moment. And uh, it was very gratifying to see them with such an amazing Hall of Fame to be part of, not just inducted into the Hall of Fame, but what an incredible class that they were a part of. You know, on the women's side, people like Becky Hammond and uh, Gary Blair, longtime coach at Texas A&M. On the, on the men's side, Dwayne Wade, Dirk Nowitzki, Tony Parker, Greg huh, Popovich. Yeah. Uh, it was an incredible class. And it was my first time to be at a, a basketball Hall of Fame induction. I've been to um, Canton for football and Cooperstown for baseball inductions. But, you know, there were so many former players who had been inducted there in their orange jackets also. But also so many um, current or recently retired players who were teammates or just friends or admirers of the inductees. So there was a like such a strong presence of recognizable names and faces there, and these women um, were uh, an equal part of that, you know, and able to kind of um, sit around and tell stories and slap backs with all these legendary figures in the history of both men's and women's basketball, you know, right where they deserve to be, and it was really special to to watch that. Yeah, that's so. Uh, yeah, that's just an incredible experience. And yeah, it just shows like the sort of the the relevance of, of the book, you know, as a, as a sort of document of this team. And also just that, like, the, the barriers that women's sports still up against that it took this long, in some ways to, to mm-hmm. have this team um, be become a part of the, the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I think that the Hall of Fame is making an effort to sort of expand the types of people that are inducted. There was a D3 men's college coach that was inducted this year. You know, um, uh, women's college coach Becky Hammond inducted um, this team. So, I mean, I think that uh, it was really nice to see. And I think that we'll probably see more figures from the history of women's basketball inducted into the Naismith Hall of Fame in the future. Of course, there already is the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame also in Knoxville. And both of, the great thing also about both of the, these Halls of Fame is there. it's not an NBA Hall of Fame. It's not a WNBA Hall of Fame. They include all levels of basketball, not just American basketball, but global basketball as well. Yes. And and we know that Cinda Berenson also faced a lot of hurdles. I mean, she she was passed away when when she was um uh nominated to be mm-hmm. in the Hall of Fame, but I think that they went like twelve rounds. Really? Uh, 12, 12 years before and they needed a lot of proof of her communication with Naismith um to show that she like, you know, okay. that connection, which feels a little strange now. Right. Um because right. it's like, you know, relying on him as like this, you know, all important <laughs> figure and not not thinking about, you know, what she did as mm-hmm. much. So yeah, it's just it, I'm I'm so it's it's so good that there's and I love this like basketball generally rather than specific but of course like the the basketball hall of fame, the women's basketball hall of fame uh, in tennessee is still necessary like until maybe there's we're more on equal footing um right. with yeah the, it was yeah. but it, you know it was, it was cool to see that at least in basketball's case obviously things aren't equal but there is a greater integration of the men's and women's game together in that hall of fame and just the way people talk about basketball than there is with many other sports you know and being in cooperstown there might be a small exhibit on some women that played in the Negro leagues or, you know, the um, all American girls baseball is, you know, in the forties. Yeah. It's not really as uh, integrated into the history of the game and football, certainly not either. And so it was fun to see that. And for my kids to be able to see that uh, while we were in Springfield. Absolutely. I have to say like, your kids like that they're very lucky that's a cool trip to take with your parents <laughs> yeah, to go well, to the Maxwell Hall of Fame for an induction ceremony like yowza <laughs> well um the Hall of Fame asked if I would write the article for the program yes about the 7016 because the book was part of their nomination process and everything and they said well we can either pay you um a couple hundred dollars or you can have tickets to the induction and I was like, we're going to the induction. <laughs> so, um, uh, my wife and kids, we, we also have this mission to visit every major league baseball stadium by the time the kids graduate from high school and they're only in fourth and seventh grade. So we have a ways to go, but, um, we made a whole trip of it. The baseball hall of fame also has a summer author series. And so I was able to, we were able to go to Cooperstown. I talked about my book about Glenn Burke there, went to Boston. We hadn't been to Fenway as a family yet. The first game my kids ever saw at Fenway Park was a walk-off Grand Slam. You know, first time they go to Cooperstown is to see their dad talk about a book. And then the first time they go to Springfield Mass, they, my son totally lucked out, was standing in the right place at the right time. He met Dwayne Wade and Chris Paul. <laughs> and then uh, at the, the induction ceremony, you know, they both met all these pioneering women from the 76 Olympics. So I hope that they remember this trip forever. You know, it was very, very special for me and my wife. And the, the kids had some good stories to tell on the first day of school when, you know, the teachers say, what did you do this summer? So they, we got back the day before school started. So it was fresh on their mind. 
Yeah, they hobnobbed with some with Wayne Wade. Like, come on. Yeah. What, what's everyone else? Supposed, how can we compete? I know. <laughs> I think I wish I had a new generation of sports was... fans. <laughs> they don't end up being sports fans and something. I know, yeah. <laughs> something went wrong along the way. Well, I love that. I love this, like, family project or this goal yeah. because I think, like – there's so much to learn along the way. So it is about like seeing the game and experiencing the game. And maybe you're analyzing the hot dog quality right. or like, you know, the dip and dots price point. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But like, I love that. It's just, there's all these other things that get built into that. I'm sure yes. that, you know, and then that is also, um, relevant to how I think all of us are looking at sports too. Like it's not just the, the, the game itself. There's like so much other things around it. And so they're getting to experience that firsthand. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a, a self-interest in this that it's a way for me to see a lot of baseball games too, which I love to do. But um, yeah, I mean, it kind of uh, every year when my wife and I map out, well, where do we want to go this summer or what's a, what would be a fun spring break trip or something. And so it's been a way for the kids to see the whole country. We A couple of years ago, we flew to Oakland and went to A's and Giants game and then drove down the coast to San Diego, you know, so they were able to see California that way or this trip to Boston, you know, we did all the Paul Revere, uh, Tea Party, uh, Boat, you know, uh, um, John F. Kennedy Museum, uh, Louisa May Alcott's house in Concord, you know, so we'll try to work in all the uh, uh, historical things we can for the kids on these trips too. And then, um, yes, they rate the kid zones at every stadium that we've been to. Um, and they Who's pay the close attention right to concessions because they both have a a variety of food allergies. And so they're curious, like, well, what can we actually eat at this game? Um, what's the, what's the top kid zones right now? Who's doing right it now? They think that the Phillies had the best kid zone. Um, they had kind of a, like a mini size wiffle ball field in, in right field that had a video board so they could see themselves up on the big screen while they, while they were hitting. And then Cleveland had a great one. Also, they've turned one of the, um, suites down the right field line into a kid's area. And so as a parent, you can kind of leave your kids playing on the inside of the suite and then step out and watch the game from the seats in front of it and not worry that, you know, they're going to run off somewhere. So I would say Cleveland and Philly have been their favorites. We're all Milwaukee Brewers fans. I'm from Wisconsin originally. So um, uh, the Brewers are up there too, but mainly just because we love the, the brew crew. Can I give a compliment and a question? Yes. <laughs> So the compliment, I'm stealing the compliment from Abby, actually, because when we were texting before, one of the things that Abby commented about your writing is it captures, there's a joyful aspect of it. And uh -huh. I mean, it's also very evident when you talk about sport. So you're able to talk about these challenges that athletes faced or be critical of some of the institutions around sport, but mm -hmm. still retain this fandom. Um, yes. And I'm, I'm wondering if that's ever been a challenge. And I'm just thinking about in your book, I mean, you show things like, I don't know, the NCAA hasn't been always great for women's sports, right? That's one of the things that you reveal. And it wasn't just this, again, this like easy progress that's continued to build on itself. Are there ever points where that affects your fandom? Or, and I mean, this is something that Abby and I have talked about before where, all right, so I'm critical of something that the NFL is doing. Do I still watch it, right? Like, right, so right. How do, you, how do you negotiate that? Because you really do seem... You love sports. It's yeah, a, I do. It's a I mean, I just thing. think that's the most honest way for me to approach it is that apart from a profession or being an author of sports books, when it really gets down to it, I, I just 
enjoy sports. You know, um, there was a period in my life where I loved to play. I've always loved going to games. I think my favorite memories as a kid um, were going to baseball games with my dad, you know, uh, Milwaukee Brewers games, living in D.C., going up to Baltimore to see them play the Orioles. Um, we had season tickets to Georgetown basketball and Patrick Ewing and those teams, you know, when I was 12 years old. You've had some um, good that sports, was really uh, history. Wow. This is like family not only your, like, yeah, not only your yeah. kids, this whole family is pretty sports blessed. Oh, yeah. for sure. And my grandfather before that, too, was the one that was subscribing me to Packer Report and what's brewing <laughs> newsletters when I was a kid. I mean, just the environment of being around sport, like it's so colorful. It's exciting. Like why, how could you not like that? Right. So there's always that. Um, but yeah, your question is something that's on my mind a lot. Um, I don't necessarily think it's a contradiction though. I mean, you, uh, people who criticize something often it's because they love it, you know? Um, and that's where the most valid criticisms come from. And so you can criticize, uh, America or baseball or college sports. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you feel like the whole thing has to be thrown out. You know, um, you want to make it better. I think it allows you to enjoy it more when you also criticize it. You know, I think it's probably a worse problem to be just the, the gung ho sports fan who never even thinks about these issues. Right. Um, when I wrote my book about Perry Wallace, that was a concern of mine in a, a little bit of a different way that, um, I knew that I would be scrutinized by people that would feel like, oh, I'm not going to tell the truth because this is a school I went to. It's a school that I worked at. It's a school that I'm a fan of, right? But I thought that, the, well, the who better than to tell the truth about what really happened to Perry in a way that um, could be very credible and hopefully have an impact on this community that I care about. And so I think you can only be a Vanderbilt basketball fan if you acknowledge that Perry Wallace had a very difficult time being a pioneer here not just traveling to Starkville Mississippi but the hardest part of his experience was on his own campus where he was ignored and isolated and felt like you know he was invisible um, and that needed to be told and if you acknowledge that and learn from it then you can wear this shirt with a certain aspect of pride that you couldn't have otherwise if, if you never acknowledged it and so that's kind of how I, I deal with it. That's a really good answer. Cause I, I sometimes struggle with that when I teach a course like sports and politics or sports and society where I don't want to be the sociologist sharing this depressing thing about an institution <laughs> that students love. Every week, it's here's another depressing thing, right? How do you mix <laughs> right. in that joy and still appreciate it? And we have those yeah. conversations. Maybe it's just the ability to compartmentalize things a yeah. little bit too. Um, like for, say, football, you know, like – my son plays baseball and basketball. Like we're not going to let him play football. And yeah, I still go to all the Vandy games. I watch the Packers games. I realize there's a certain element of hypocrisy in that, but I, like, I'm not going to hide from that. I, 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 the games are fun. And for now I'm comfortable like compartmentalizing all of that. I also think one of the, the power in the books is that like the compartmentalization is not as present in that we're going back and forth between like the problem with the institution or the problem with the country in some cases. And we're talking mm -hmm. about uh, like what like Glenn Burke faced, like the discrimination that it, it pushed out, like that he was sort of just uh, uh, left behind by MLB after he right. had contributed so much and been so brave, which, you know, I, I think it's also like 
I wish people didn't have to be brave, of course, because I wish we didn't have circumstances that set that dynamic up, but that, he, you know, and he, he did all this, you know, was a wonderful teammate and, and so such a great part of the institution of the Dodgers. And then it's just like tossed to the curb. Yeah. So, but we, and we hold, so we hold the institution right next to the individual. And I think that that is something that I really enjoy about the books. And just in general, like when we think about all the problems that we're facing, they all come back to institutions, you know, in, in, in so many ways. And so it's like, those are, that's where the attention needs to be focused for change, you know, changing a heart, minds, things like that, like is, is a different conversation, I think, than than some of these like problematic histories. I I mean, MLB, like Mm -hmm. terrible, terrible history. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. It's really the institutions that, um, that deserve the scrutiny and that need the change. And and then, so that's what allows you to enjoy the sports as you're enjoying the athletes and you're enjoying the the moments of the the game itself. And so you you are able to separate those. I probably have the Olympics are the best example of that. I mean, like if you think about the institution of the Olympics, there's nothing really admirable about, about that at all, but the stories of the athletes and the drama of the competitions, like you can't beat it. And so what a stark difference there is there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And yeah, I think that that's a really interesting part because of course, you know, if someone, if an individual, a high ranking individual in in sports somewhere does something bigoted or, you know, like says something like, I think that it's important to hold them accountable or be called out, but like that doesn't change the institutional issue that, you know, they're, they're part of an institution that might have Mm-hmm. terrible practices like the Olympics, right. you know, or like really uh, benefit from other, from suffering. Um, and from, yeah, just it's tough the, out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I mean, like you could see it in, the, um, in a, in a different way, maybe like with the NFL, um, having end races and painted in the end zone of the Kansas city chief, you know, like, like all of the different, uh, aspects of institutional decisions versus public relations efforts versus issues that aren't even addressed at all. Uh, I don't know, like it goes on and on. And, um, the thing that really taught me about that difference between institutional blame and individual accountability and blame, it was not related to sports at all, but it was, um, there's a guy named Jim Hall who was the president of the National Transportation Safety Board who lives here in Tennessee. And at one point he was interested in writing a book about his experiences investigating different plane crashes. And so I was working with him on uh, researching certain uh, accidents that had happened. And he would say in almost every instance, you know, that it was assigned to pilot error. And if you just looked a little bit further, it was something much more structural involved with the airline or with regulations or with institutions that was really at fault and what needed to be corrected in order to prevent these things from happening again and not pinning everything on the individual actions of the pilot in that circumstance. And um, I know this is completely off topic, but that was years ago. And that always stuck with me in, in looking at when individuals are being held accountable for something that's a much bigger social or institutional infrastructure type of, of issue, how easy it is. It's just easier for people to assign uh, this to an individual and, and not look at the bigger issues that are much more um, maybe political, right. Or harder to tackle and to try to avoid that trap. 
Yes, I I think about this every time I see a politician tweet out, there's no room for racism here or something like that like in, in response to an incident yeah, of right. anti-Semitism, racism, whatever it is. And it's like, that's completely dismissing the fact that there's a problem yes. that not just with this individual, but that, that the history in this place or a large, like within, you know, North America's history, whatever it is, has like made room, you know, has mm-hmm. been based on mm-hmm. b- bigotry at a, Institutional, level. Uh, yeah, systemic yeah, level. Systemic so it's level. like, how can that's, you? That's not who we are. We're better than this. Right, right. <laughs> clearly, it's clearly is part exactly of who we are. are. <laughs> you have to acknowledge exactly that. And, and that doesn't mean that that. Uh, and, and like you're saying, Andrew, that doesn't mean that if we say that's who that's who we've been or that's who this country has allowed us to be, doesn't mean that we can't do better. It doesn't mean that with those that critique, just like you know. Colin Kaepernick is not mm-hmm. hate, hating the United States by right. protesting. He's suggesting possibly that we can do better than we're yeah. doing. Yeah. And um, so I think that, yeah, there's just so much there. Like that, and, and, and I think the book really presents that. And that's not something that maybe totally gets impacted with every audience that the book is being presented to necessarily. But for me, it's quite powerful to like project that lens onto it and be like, what, what, you know, the context for these individuals, how they overcame what they needed, what they had to overcome to survive. And also it's like, what have we done? What have we done to so many? And these are, mm-hmm. and these are, you know, yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. I think this is like, I hope, I don't know if we're done, but this has been a really fun conversation. It seems uh, that we're all on the same page on a, a lot of things or not that a conversation has to be good because everyone's on the same page, but like these topics are so interesting uh, to talk about. I, I do feel that there's been over the last, I mean, you guys, do you agree over the last five, 10 years, just the, um, and you're both in operating academic circles that like this has become a much more um, respected area to study that there are um, so many interesting people that have voices now that maybe didn't before. I mean, there's so many problems with social media, but I think that has elevated a lot of voices in these spaces in particular um, and uh, types of voices that weren't hear, heard before necessarily. Um, and it seems like the right time and uh, the best time to be out there talking about the impact of sports and society. Yeah, I, I think so. And I was going to say one thing, I, again, another compliment to your writing. Um, and like Abby was saying, you're not always overt in making these statements, but one of the challenges that I think it used to be to justify studying sport was we would say things like, oh, it's just it's a reflection of society. So it's a way to get insight into how society works by studying this thing that's popular. Well, a lot of your stories show how sport doesn't just reflect society, but it changes society. Yes. And that's and that's the real argument they like to give to other academics or a larger audience about why we have to pay attention to this stuff. Right. Yep. When the women's team competes in the Olympics, it's not just a reflection of change in society, but it it's a statement that can inspire other women or that can do something to how we perceive the potentials of women or the potentials of sport. And so many of your stories, whether it's writing about Glenn Burke or the, you know, Olympic athletes, it's, it's not just a reflection. It's doing something bigger. And I think more and more other people are realizing that as they see athletes being on the front line of protests Mm -hmm. or like Mm -hmm. you're saying, LeBron James opening a school or Maya Moore, choosing to leave sport to be an activist and, and save this innocent person. Right. So yeah, I, yeah I, that's why I love these stories. You're, you know, you're so right. I just mentioned something along those lines to uh, um, uh, someone in the provost's office here at Vanderbilt uh, yesterday, when I was talking about the impact that Perry Wallace had on this school was probably greater than any other individual in the history of this university, which is 150 years old, you know, and that he was part of the, only the third class of black students on campus period. 
but no one really knew who any of those other students were. It was the basketball player that the community and the country knew was here. And the reason why Perry was recruited goes back to Vanderbilt expelling Reverend James Lawson from the university in 1960 when he was leading the lunch counter sit-ins in downtown Nashville as a divinity school student at Vanderbilt. And at that time, Board of Trust was, they didn't thank him for standing up for civil rights. They expelled him from the university. A new chancellor was brought in a couple years later to open up the school. And he understood, for better or worse, people pay attention to sports. And if he wanted to send a signal to the country that this university was changing, he could maybe most effectively do that through athletics, which wasn't maybe the first thing that would come to mind of a chancellor at a school like Vanderbilt, but it did for him. So you asked the coach, he said, you know, we have admitted black students now. You can recruit a black player. And in fact, I would like you to. And so he sent a signal. Things were changing. This wasn't the type of school that was going to expel Reverend Lawson anymore. In fact, we recruited Perry Wallace. And then um, Perry comes here. Doesn't have the most pleasant experience, but is honest in talking about that with the administration, with the local media at that time in 1970 and also throughout the rest of his life. And that afforded a platform for the whole school to look at his experience and see, well, how are we dealing with uh, racism now or how are we dealing with, you know, they didn't use words like diversity, equity, inclusion back then. But, you know, those types of issues were able to be discussed because there was this very visible case of it not working out that well, you know, in the university's history that happened to come through athletics. I don't think would have that platform wouldn't have been there with a, just a biology student or something, you know. Um, and, and so it forced, it forced them to have those conversations. It didn't just allow yeah. it. For, they had they had to acknowledge it once it was public through sports. Absolutely. Um, and so uh, this school then takes the lessons. I think that, you know, there's a street named after Perry. Now there's a oil painting of him in the engineering building. There's scholarships named after him. His jersey's retired. And those symbolic things are, uh, um, you know, important and they're deserved. But you can't just leave it there. Like if you're going to be the school that says we're proud that we had the first black basketball player, then what do you do every uh, day to learn from that and to um, use it as a jumping off point for further discussion and live up to his legacy by having things like the sports and society initiative here? You know, like you have to do meaningful things, too. And so in that way, this basketball player has changed the culture at the school, too. And like you say, it's not just reflecting, uh, you know, what was life like in the 1960s here, but he has like a living piece of the school still today. Was he number 25? Is that who's behind you? I'm trying to remember. Yeah. And that picture is drawn by another middle school student. So I was in um, Marion, North Carolina, East McDowell Middle School. And Marion, North Carolina is where Roy Williams is from. So it's a good basketball town. It's in North Carolina, so it's a good basketball town anyway. But the librarian there invited me to speak at her school a few times. I'd drive over to Asheville. It's near Asheville. And um, as a gift, she would always ask a student who was a good artist to draw a picture that was related to my book. And so I have a women's basketball-related picture from – Inaugural ballers, uh, but this was when I went to speak about Perry Wallace so cool. and his student drew this, this picture behind art me. connection too, and a way for a student to you know like engage with your work further. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it was it's a it was really special, and so of course I put it on my wall, and um, <laughs> I mean that like I say, the meeting with the kids is great. You never know, like sometimes they'll ask the most ridiculous 
questions too, you know. Um, I got asked so many times, what was Perry Wallace's favorite color? What did he like to eat for dinner? And this is while he was still living. But I like, I, I asked him, like, I need the answer because I get asked this all the time. So in the future or later, I was able to say, well, green and grilled yeah. salmon. And then you know? like... Oh, those are good choices yeah. too. I respect that. Yeah. I respect him now, not you just as say, a groundbreaking athlete. They're like, right. well, is there a sauce on the salmon? <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> any greens? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the thing now is, they'll ask about uh, him, and I'll have to say, well, he passed away a couple of years ago, and they they're very interested in in death. You know, these middle school students, and so they'll ask, well how did he die? I'll say cancer, what type of cancer, you know, and um, those are pretty interesting discussions too. And uh, another thing that's happening here in Nashville next month, less than a month from now, September 7th, Nashville Children's Theater is premiering a play on the life of Perry Wallace based on Strong Inside. Um, It's a great children's theater. Uh, It's adult actors. They perform for kids and um, so they've adapted the book into a, a 70 minute play on Perry that, um, you know, again, basketball will be a, a hook to get uh, middle school kids interested in coming. But it's a great play that incorporates um, real footage of George Wallace and Martin Luther King and um, tells an honest story of the racism that Perry encountered, but also the excellence that he was a part of at a segregated high school in Nashville, Pearl High School as the valedictorian of that all-black school and three-time state champion there. So it celebrates a a piece of North Nashville history, tells a true story of the racism he encountered in the SEC. And I expect that there'll be some backlash to the play, probably from some people that uh, are offended by the truth being told uh, about that aspect of history. But I'm proud of the Children's Theater for putting it on. And uh, every uh, Metro Schools kid here, and I think sixth and eighth grade, will be invited to come on field trips to it. it's going to be pretty exciting in just a few weeks. Yeah. Congratulations on that. That, yeah, seriously. I mean, I I can imagine that that's, I'm not going to say that's a dream come true for you because I don't know what a dream, come, like, you know, what, what your perspective on that. Dream come true for me is Milwaukee Brewers winning the World Series. Sure. Well, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, I'll, I'll wish for that too. I, I just think that your work being like continued in a thoughtful way, like the trajectory, building off of what you've done to do something else, to contribute in another way, to tell that story in that truthful way. Poof. That seems. I don't think any of my social theory articles are going to make it to uh, adapt it into a play in any time in the future. Yeah, you need more characters, perhaps, Kyle. Yeah, it's a playwright named Tyrone Robinson, um, who's amazing. He lives in New York and does um, uh, great work, and and uh, he'll be here in a couple of weeks to kick off that play in September. Great. That's wonderful. And a perfect place to end. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. This is, you know, in some ways I wish that the through line from your books to now weren't so relevant because it means that we're still fighting these same issues, you know? Um, But it's so important to keep looking at these stories and and think about how they make sense now and and why and like what, you know, what can be done. And so thanks for doing what you do and sharing it with us and and giving us insight into that process. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, thanks to both of you for doing what you do also and continuing this work in uh, different parts of the country. And with the podcast also, I mean, it's great as an author to have a venue to talk about what you do. So I appreciate that very much. Great. Wonderful. Well, yeah, take care, everybody. And we'll see you on the next episode.